Hey everyone, it's Jacob here. Welcome back to another episode of the Law of Code podcast. This is the show covering the legal side of crypto, NFTs, DAOs, and any other blockchain related innovation. Anything mentioned in this episode by Jacob Robinson or his guests is not legal advice or investment advice. All opinions are Jacob's and his guests alone. Nothing discussed today should be relied upon for legal or investment decisions. This show is solely for information and entertainment purposes only. Jacob and his guests are not your lawyers, nor are they investment advisors. Please work directly with a lawyer or investment professional. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Law of Code podcast. I'm excited to share this episode with you today, talking about all things Bitcoin ordinals, as well as the legal implications of this new use case on the Bitcoin blockchain. And I'm joined today by Cameron B. Pick. Cameron is a partner at Marshall Gerstein and Boren LLP, who advises clients in the blockchain and metaverse space on intellectual property issues. Cameron, welcome to the Law of Code. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Jacob. It's great to be here and it's great to meet you at Consensus. I thought we'll get into it just by learning a bit more about your Genesis block. Could you describe your introduction to, to Bitcoin or cryptocurrency? The way I think about it, I think I had basically three introductions to Bitcoin. The first was probably around 2012 when some friends of mine started messing around on Silk Road and I don't know what they were buying, but they told me that there's this encrypted uh, digital money that you could uh, buy things with and the government can never track it and uh, you're completely safe to buy whatever you want to buy. Uh, and at the time, I mean, I was skeptical uh, that it was so encrypted and couldn't be tracked and that kind of turned out to be right. Then a couple years later in 2014, some of those same people started to say, wait a minute, not only was I able to buy uh, different things on the internet with it, now the currency is going way up and so this is a great investment. So then I started to look at it in 2014, is this worthwhile as an investment? But again, I really didn't know much about it. I didn't look into the technology. I just Googled it and saw there were a few different currencies. It was Bitcoin. I think there was Litecoin at the time and maybe a couple others. And I didn't really know how it worked and just saw that the prices went way up and way down all the time. Uh, and I just thought, all right, this is some crazy speculative thing and nobody knows which coin is going to be worthwhile, if any. Uh, so again, passed up that opportunity in 2014. Then a couple years later was when I really started to get into it. So around 2016, some of the clients in my firm started patenting different implementations of blockchain technology. And so I thought, and I really need to learn about this one so I could draft patents to it. And two, if these big companies are starting to look into this and come up with ways that they can use blockchain technology, that there must be something to it. So then I started to look into it, how it worked, um, learned about the security advantages, the immutability, um, and how you have this decentralized trust system. And I you know, fell in love and was pretty amazed uh, by how this worked. So right then and there, I started to invest in Bitcoin and haven't looked back ever since. It's interesting to hear everyone's story and 
it's amazing that I, I think we've recorded over a hundred episodes and there hasn't been one story that's been the same as the next and your journey is definitely uh, unique as well. So the one thing I was really excited to talk to you about was Bitcoin ordinals and everyone's been talking about the impact they've had on transaction fees and the potential ability to secure the network with this function. Let's start off with just describing what Bitcoin ordinals are for those who have heard of it, but might not be too familiar, or haven't gone into the weeds yet on it. So Bitcoin ordinals are essentially NFTs on the Bitcoin blockchain. Uh, they don't work exactly like how NFTs do on Ethereum, but they're a way to protect your uh, digital or to have your digital artifacts or assets on the blockchain. Uh, and so it's just a, an alternative way. Um, instead of doing it through a smart contract platform like Ethereum, you do it through Bitcoin. Uh, and then the digital asset is directly on the blockchain as opposed to in Ethereum's implementation where you have some kind of uh, unique token identifier. And that token identifier generally is associated with a link to the digital asset. And so that link can be at a centralized server or it can be uh, in a decentralized file storage like IPFS, but you're still reliant on either that centralized uh, server or the decentralized file storage to keep your digital asset the way you want it to be and not to change anything about it. With ordinals, they're stored directly on the blockchain. And so you don't have that concern. So, you know, you could say that they're more immutable than uh, on Ethereum or Solana or some of the smart contract platforms. And so the way ordinals work is they're taking advantage of the Sedgwit and Taproot upgrades to Bitcoin. And what those upgrades allowed for is in the witness data section of a transaction, you can actually store up to four megabytes of data. And so that's large enough to be able to store image files. You could even maybe store some small videos there. And so the way ordinals work is they take, uh, they associate the digital artifact with a particular Satoshi. And so it's Satoshi being the smallest unit of, of Bitcoin. Uh, each Satoshi is tracked in the order it's mined. So the Genesis block with the first several Bitcoin uh, would have the Satoshi number one through X. And then, uh, you know, the million Satoshi would be number one million. And that's then associated with a particular uh, digital asset that you would put on the blockchain when you tr make a transfer uh, of, of a small amount of Bitcoin, essentially the first Satoshi in that transfer uh, is used as that ordinal and then associated with your digital asset. And so once you upload the image or once you input the data associated with that ordinal, can that change? Is there any method of changing that once it's been, like you mentioned, it's immutable, but a 21 million Bitcoin. And obviously that gives you quite a bit of 
sats to work with. So, all right. So you have 21 million Bitcoin, but then within the 21 million Bitcoin is 100 million Satoshis for each Bitcoin. So you're going probably into the quadrillions. I thought I had heard there may be some ways for uh, the owner to be able to change what that uh, digital asset is associated with a particular Satoshi. I'm not sure if that's currently being implemented, but I think that that might be a possibility. So if someone was looking to play around with ordinals, how do people interact with Bitcoin ordinals? Right. So I haven't uploaded one, but I've played around and looked at the essentially the block explorer for it to see what's what's out there. And so the way you would do it is you have to have a taproot enabled wallet. Uh, there's specific wallets for it. One of them I think is called Ordinal Wallet. And so you would just go to the website like ordinalwallet.com, I believe, uh, and set up a wallet from there. And then with that wallet, you can make purchases uh, on that website. And do you need to keep them in that wall? Like what would happen if you transfer that Satoshi to, you know, a self-custodied wallet, like a ledger? Although obviously these days ledger is a little controversial, but if you were to do that, and then I assume if you transfer it back to this ordinals wallet, then you can view it. Like the ordinals wallet gives you that view function that you might not otherwise have. Mm-hmm. So, so I think the purpose of having a separate wallet for this is because Satoshis themselves are, are fungible. So you could, if you have it in your ledger wallet, you could potentially end up transferring um, just on, you know, a normal transaction, transferring that Satoshi that right. is tied to your digital asset. If you have it in the ordinals wallet, you can keep it separate from your other Satoshis. So that way you don't run into that problem, but you... But there's no reason why you couldn't transfer uh, from an ordinal wallet or a, another Taproot-enabled wallet to to a ledger um, or some other Bitcoin wallet. You'd have it there, but you just might accidentally end up transferring the wrong Bitcoin, basically. Okay. And we ran the math. When all 21 million Bitcoin are mined, there will be 2.1 quadrillion sats. So that gives gives us some runway, at least in the near future. And so, yeah, you made a good point, right? Every Satoshi is considered fungible, but at the end of the day, they aren't technically fungible because you can differentiate each one and that's the numbering system that exists. And so you said in the case of the ordinals, it would be the first sat in that transaction. Right. That, that gets right. So- described to yeah, so uh, when you set up a transaction and, you know, the user's not really going to do this. This is all done behind the scenes by the wallet. But when you set up the transaction, you include uh, your digital asset, which might be digital art, like a certain image, or it could be text uh, or even a video file. And then you include in that transaction uh, a certain small amount of Bitcoin that you would send uh, to the receive address. And the receive address would be another address that you uh, hold on to so that way you can control the digital asset that you create. And so when you send it to the receive address, you need to put enough Bitcoin in there 
one to pay the mm-hmm. the fees to the miners and then just a little more uh, so that way you have that satoshi in there so maybe you put in you know 0.001 uh, bitcoin and the ordinals protocol would figure out within that 0.001 what's the first satoshi in there and that first satoshi would then be uh, given the order number in which it was mined and then associated with your digital artifact or asset. Right. Okay. And then once you have these ordinals in your wallet, right, you can view them and they act like digital artifacts, like NFTs on the, on any other blockchain, obviously with a different functionality on the back end. In terms of the, what can be inscribed? Is there a difference? I mean, obviously you pointed out the, limits on data i think it was you said it was four megabytes that can be uploaded in an ordinal that to me seems like a big example of a difference between what we typically have seen in ethereum where you can have a link to a a video for example that can have quite a bit more information on it than than something on the ordinal system are there any other major differences that you've noticed so i think it's really the size and it's that it's not operating on a smart contract platform. So on Ethereum, uh, because it's a smart contract platform, it maintains uh, the state of each address. Bitcoin uses the unspent transaction method where it's essentially just recording a number of transactions. And then when a user wants to send out a certain amount of Bitcoin, uh, validating nodes, determine whether or not the users, uh, based on the transactions they perceive, that they have enough Bitcoin to send that particular amount out. Uh, So that's the same case here with this Ordinals protocol and any other protocol on the Bitcoin platform. It's not maintaining state and updating uh, the state of a particular address. So I think that's one of the, the bigger differences between Ethereum NFTs, if you will, and uh, Bitcoin ordinals. But otherwise, what's actually uh, the digital asset itself is, is pretty similar. Have there been any novel use cases or, or where are you seeing the use cases in ordinals and with clients, if any? Yeah, so, so far what we're seeing is very similar to what you see on, on Ethereum, uh, you have digital images, uh, digital art, and then the new thing that's been coming up lately uh, has been referred to as BRC20 tokens, which is supposed to be like different forms of fungible tokens, similar to Ethereum's ERC20 tokens. But again, because it doesn't maintain state, Uh, And there's no smart contract that's actually running a program on something like the Ethereum virtual machine. All you really do is you upload an image that says, I'm creating this token and there's going to be this many. uh, And you each user has a limit of how many tokens that they can mint out of the, you know, let's say a million supply. Uh, So those are the two main use cases we're seeing right now. But Similar to Ethereum, I imagine um, digital assets are going to have more practical use cases in the future. I think one of the big ones will be real estate 
having real estate transactions on a blockchain will make title a lot easier. Uh, and then ticketing. If you can have tickets on the blockchain, you don't have to worry about counterfeiting mm. in the same way that you do now. Yeah, I think I think it's really interesting. I mean, the use cases, anytime you need to authenticate something, it becomes an opportunity for something like a blockchain. And at the end of the day, that's what these ledgers provide us is like you mentioned to earlier is trust. And, and if you can trust something and if you need to trust something, that's where the use of a blockchain can come in. Uh, so I think that will be really interesting. Now, you're an IP attorney, you, you practice in the patent space. Of course, issues come to mind when you think about NFTs generally, but I'm curious, are there legal issues that come to mind that are unique to ordinals given the method of operation and the immutability when compared to some other platforms where now anyone can upload and, and something will permanently be in existence and, and how things like that will be mitigated, for example, when it comes to copyright infringement? Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a few issues on the patent side, but before getting into that, I mean, I think one big thing is uh, from a fraud perspective, because it's directly on the blockchain, you, you don't have to worry about fraud in the same way that you do uh, with an Ethereum NFT. So with an Ethereum NFT, you have a link uh, on your public blockchain, but if that link's maintained by a central server, they can take down uh, that link, they could change what's in there, Someone could sell you uh, an NFT telling you it's one thing. Let's say they tell you it's a deed to a house. You pay all this money for this house uh, and you should be able to find out what that link is too. But if you have an unsophisticated user, they could potentially uh, be duped into a situation where they make a big purchase and the NFT actually doesn't represent the digital asset that they think uh, it does. So I think by putting it on the Bitcoin blockchain, uh, where you have on this public ledger exactly what the digital asset is, I think you remove some of those fraud concerns. I mean, there's always kind of fraud concerns in the, the crypto space, but I think those fraud concerns are more about telling somebody that some project's going to be worth a lot and, and it's not. Uh, but in terms of the authenticity of it, it becomes very clear on, on the Bitcoin blockchain. And then in terms of patent issues, so I think I have one concern and it's not even that big of a concern, but I think it's something to think about. And then there's one big advantage that I can think of, of uh, having NFTs on the Bitcoin blockchain. And so my, my concern in the patent space is the way patents are written, it's very important that you define uh, the different terms that are used in the patent because uh, lawyers are always looking for little ways that they can say, well, this particular uh, company doesn't infringe the patent because this term should be construed this way, even though you meant for it to be construed a, a different way. And so here, if you have a patent that describes NFTs, because Bitcoin ordinals and these other protocols in the Bitcoin blockchain are so new, uh, drafters might not have included this kind of description uh, in the patent document. 
And then a lawyer could potentially argue uh, for a patent case about NFTs if the alleged infringer is actually has their digital asset on the Bitcoin blockchain, that that's not an NFT because it's not in a smart contract platform. Uh, the Satoshi is arguably not a non-fungible token because it can be fungible. It's in between uh, in this situation. And the metadata is included directly on the, the chain as opposed to off-chain uh, in some of these Ethereum situations. So I think it just depends how the patent drafter described an NFT, but it's important now to to make sure when someone is writing a patent about uh, NFTs to describe both possible scenarios, describe an NFT as it is on a smart contract platform, but then also maybe uh, describe how ordinals work and describe that it could be on the Bitcoin blockchain. It doesn't necessarily have to include a separate unique token identifier. It could just be a digital asset on a blockchain uh, that's associated with, you know, an existing token like a Satoshi. Uh, so that's my concern. Although, again, I don't think it's a huge issue, but it's, it's something to consider. On the other side, though, I think there's a big advantage uh, to this new type of, of NFT in that uh, in the last 10 years or so, uh, there was a patent decision that came out that said basically for software, if you have some old business process uh, that could be implemented without a computer and all you're doing is taking that process, putting it on the computer and you're not improving a technology in any way, um, that's not patentable. And so that's knocked out a lot of potential patents that were getting allowed for you know, the last several decades. Uh, but if you can show that there's a technical improvement, uh, then your patent should be able to overcome the, this issue. And I think Bitcoin NFTs provides for a good way to be able to show that you've actually improved technology by using NFTs in a different way, by including them on the Bitcoin blockchain and having these uh, particular advantages, reducing the chances of fraud, uh, increasing the immutability of it, and not having to worry about these links that could get uh, changed or uh, hacked into. And so I think that's an important thing to be able to, if you have some kind of description of ordinals or of a Bitcoin NFT, to be able to make those arguments. Because recently, it's been great for, for patent lawyers that they've just been able to describe uh, blockchain technology. And that, that's an innovation uh, enough to be able to show that you have a technical improvement. But it's a little bit of a cat and mouse game um, with the examiners where over time they'll say, well, this is generic technology. And then you have to come up with a new um, technical solution. So this is a new technical solution to a problem uh, on existing blockchains like on the Ethereum blockchain. Such a good example of the specificity that is needed in the patent process in, in most cases and how example like NFTs and, you know, we use one term, 
but what does that term even mean and, and how it's applied and what it looks like on the back end is a bit like DAOs where not all NFTs are the same. There's so many variations. And as you get into to the application process, I'm sure for patents, those small distinctions make a huge difference. Now, if someone's listening and they're interested in blockchain technology, they're building novel software or what they believe to be novel, how should people think about engaging with a patent attorney? What stage in the process is a good time to speak? And, and what is the end result that typically, like, what does that look like when people work with you? It's good to get started pretty quickly. Essentially, once you either release your code out or you disclose it to the public in other countries outside of the US, you lose your rights to be able to draft a patent application at that stage. In the US, you get one year from the time that you disclose it. So you do have a little more time, but uh, it's possible that you're going to want to file the application in several different countries. And once you disclose it, it's possible that somebody else hears about that and then they file their patent first and the first one to file wins with the patent office. So I think you want to start thinking about it early on. Uh, a lot of companies want to wait a little bit until they have their investment money and until they're pretty uh, confident that they're going to really move forward with this product. But I think once you don't have to have a working product to be able to file a, a patent application, once you have an idea of what it is and how it would work, and you can describe how it would work enough uh, to a patent attorney, then that's the stage where I would get started. And kind of like you mentioned before, the patent attorneys generally know how to fill in the blanks on a lot of these, uh, particularly if they understand the technology well. So you don't have to have every little thing figured out, but if you have the general idea of how it would be implemented and how it would work. Uh, that's a good time to start talking to the patent attorneys. Okay. And in terms of the type of work you do, I mean, obviously you work very heavily in the crypto space, but what does your practice look like now? How, how far of a range does it, does it encompass? And I know you've, you've done some work in the metaverse as well. Yeah. Uh, we, we've done different patents with, uh, Plenty of use cases of NFTs, of blockchain technology, uh, some of the metaverse. We've done some trademarks related uh, to the metaverse or trademarking different products that were uh, in the world, real world, but now are potentially metaverse implementations. Uh, so I try to do as much blockchain technology work as I can, but inevitably uh, I end up doing other things, a lot with AI, since ChatGPT especially, we've been seeing a lot in that area. We've done patenting with different hardware too, driverless cars, LiDAR sensors, drones. So we do things all across the board that has anything to do with software. I've done some stuff with epigenetics, which I think is really interesting. And I don't understand the biology that well, but I try to do the best I can, and we have other lawyers that understand the biology, but the machine learning aspect of it uh, is where I can help out. And so we, we have uh, expertise in all kinds of different technologies, but blockchain is kind of go-to area. 
it's a, it's a good area to have as a go-to, and I think especially in the field you practice in, I'm sure it's r very interesting and always novel, but it can build on itself where now you have learnings over the past few years that you can apply and, and gives you an ability to provide so much value to clients rather than going to someone who needs to learn that technology from scratch. It's a, it's a complicated space, but definitely a rewarding one. And I think the patent space will be interesting going forward. How do you think about the whole ethos of Web3 and, and composability, but also open sourcing, given what you know about the IP space generally and the benefits that do accrue from having some IP rights? Do you think this is something that we'll see proliferate? Or is it a sort of short-term idealistic interpretation of the future? Where, where do you see things line up? I mean, I, I kind of see things going a little bit both ways. I think uh, inevitably there is going to be companies that are going to want to protect some of the innovation in, these, in this space and that they're going to want to close things off. Uh, but because of the way it started and because of the amount of innovation you can have from open source, it really allows uh, people to build on products and then you can improve them at a much faster rate. I think there's always going to be um, an element of keeping things open source and uh, going away from patenting. But on the other hand, uh, people don't want their, their ideas copied. And so they're still going to be mix, I guess, of, you know, things like at the protocol layer, at the blockchain layer, maybe that's all kept open source, but some of the dApps or some of the use cases on top of it, that's where I see the patenting being done. And do you see, how do you see the patent uh, space changing? Like, do you think the space will be different going forward? Will there be a decentralized method of selling and licensing copyright or are you not necessarily pessimistic, but do you see that the status quo continuing regardless of the, the technological opportunities available elsewhere? Because to me, it's an interesting dynamic where you can almost, you can only have one or the other. You can't really have some patents listed here and some patents listed solely on chain or, or can you? Right. Uh, so there has been some attempts so far. Uh, I think IPWE is building a system for essentially NFTs that represent different patents. There's been some other attempts also. I think that's only going to get bigger and bigger. Uh, but like you said, you need it to be one way or, or the other. Uh, so maybe once you get a critical mass of patents uh, on the blockchain, then we'll make that transition. But right now, because there's so few that are, people are much more comfortable just using the traditional system. But there's a lot of benefits to being able to have NF have patents represented by NFTs on chain. Uh, you know, you can fractionalize them. You can sell them much faster. I mean, patents right now, uh, they're very difficult to, to monetize because there's not that many potential suitors when you want to sell a patent, you have to kind someone in that particular industry. Uh, they're expensive. There's not a clear liquid marketplace for it. It's called done behind closed doors. Uh, so it's hard to figure out what the right value is for certain patents. 
Uh, and there's a lot of talk about how, you know, out of every 100 patents, maybe 95 of them are worth very little, but then the other five are worth millions and millions. And so it's a bit of a gamble. And I think if you open it up to the NFT world, uh, there's a lot of gamblers there who would maybe not want to invest millions, but if you can fractionalize it and they can invest a little bit on small percentages of many different patents, I think that could really uh, create a, a liquid marketplace there that just doesn't exist right now. Right. And it's it's a bit of a black box, I think, for most people, the way that the system works. And I think if licensing were to be more accessible, it would be really interesting and, and a bit of a win-win for everybody. In, in terms of the crypto space, and maybe we could talk a bit about things outside of patents or financials. You know, we, we spoke earlier about ticketing and a few other use cases for crypto. What do you see the next couple of years looking like? You've been through bull markets. You've been through bear markets. You know, you've seen the industry persist. What do you see over the next year or so in the space? And, and do we have things to look forward to? Yeah, I mean, I think after going to consensus, it was good to see that kind of the vibe there was generally positive, even though, you know, we've had a big downturn in prices, but that's just what happens. It goes in these cycles. We're maybe at the start of a a bull cycle now, but it's very early on there. So I I think there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic. I think the prices will come back up. But in terms of uh, the future of of this industry. One of the big things uh, I've been seeing kind of a push to make Web3 a lot easier for people to use. You know, people are comfortable with Web2 interfaces. They're comfortable with uh, having like a username and password. But once you introduce now, you have to keep track of these private keys. You have seeds. Uh, you can't lose it. You have to store it somewhere and you have to understand and interact with a new environment um, that makes it a lot harder for the average person. And so what I've been seeing lately has been kind of a, a big movement uh, to take private keys and seeds and things like that and put them behind the scenes and have the user interacting with something that's a lot more like web two. Uh, one company I saw is uh, port key where they're creating a wallet where you just use a username and password, and then you include uh, some things that you would have like for two-factor authentication, like an email address and phone number, and maybe some of your uh, social media handles. And then the wallet keeps track of the keys, but all you do is log in with a username and password. And then if you uh, happen to lose that wallet or you lose your computer and you got a new computer, you can essentially recover whatever you have on that wallet using the uh, two-factor authentication type digital identity assets. I agree. And I, I think there's, it's, I, I think what we're missing is the user experience, right? People didn't use Netflix as often as they do when it became a very easy streaming service through an app that you could download on your TV and, and then you could work that way rather than having to order the CDs. And yes, you could access movies, but it was just so much easier to use and understand. And we're just missing that easy onboarding, that 
doesn't really exist in the space yet and the interconnectedness with the existing system, things like Facebook or Messenger. It will be interesting to see how that looks just because of the pushback we've seen from regulators and, and many non-crypto parties in the space. But I think it's it's something that will be inevitable, just like PayPal went through it in, in the early 2000s. Right. Yeah, I think that's what you're going to need. I mean, it's like with the iPhone, there were plenty of smartphones before that. But once it became something uh, that was easy for users, that was uh, had the right look, had the right kind of comfortability, that's, that's when it really took off. I think it's a similar thing here where to get this kind of critical mass of users to get on the other side of the S-curve, uh, with Bitcoin adoption and other crypto adoption, you need a really good user experience. Uh, and I haven't necessarily seen that so far, but I think that's what we might start to see over the next few years uh, are ways to essentially interact with the blockchain and maybe exchange crypto and have some crypto without having to learn about a whole new way to use the Internet and yeah. to use money. Yeah, no, it's it's true. And so you've been practicing as a patent attorney for a while. Did you ever think about going to be a litigator, going into securities law, or have you always enjoyed the the field you're in? Yeah, I was always planning to do a patent law because my background in college, my major was electrical engineering. And so that always seemed to make sense. Going into uh, my first job, I just didn't really like the sound of litigating. Um, it just seemed a little too intense and like your hours are can get pretty crazy around the time you have court. Uh, now, like I'm involved somewhat in some litigations uh, and it doesn't sound as daunting. And so going back, it's something I could have done, but, but I like a patent prosecution. So I'm happy with that. In terms of securities, it's interesting that you asked that because I have tried to learn more about securities law. I mean, I think a lot of times with our crypto clients, they might have some amount of like trademark or patent work, but really the core of their legal issues is in securities. And so I think it'd be better if I'm a little more well-rounded and can help out with some of that, but it's just not really my area of expertise and our firm specializes in patent and trademark. And so it's not really what the firm you know, plans, direction that the firm's planning to go. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting career. And I find there's so, it's like every patent attorney was an electrical engineer or some form of engineer prior. <laughs> and I, I can, I can right. see the benefit, right? You get to scratch that itch of what you learned in engineering with breaking down, understanding functionality. And there's not many areas of law where you get exposure like that. Right, right. And so, Coming out of law school, they always told me, if you think of yourself more as an engineer than a lawyer, mm -hmm. you should do patent prosecution where you're drafting the patents. If you think of yourself more of a lawyer, then you should do patent litigation where you're in court or maybe something else. And I just, I really did like my engineering a lot. I like learning about these uh, new technologies and I do like getting into the weeds and figuring out how does this stuff really work. Uh, so that's, you know, kept me interested in, in the patent prosecution side. Yeah. No, it's fantastic. And Cameron, are there any common mistakes you see people make, whether it is bringing on an attorney too early or not securing their IP rights early enough? 
is there something that comes to mind that not that non IP lawyers should be mindful of when advising clients on things related to IP and, and when to bring lawyers in? Yeah, I mean, I think there are plenty of situations where people wait too long. Uh, as I mentioned before, once you're at the stage where you're presenting on it or you're releasing your product or releasing your code, uh, it's already almost almost too late. So I think in those situations, it would be better if uh, those types of companies came to us earlier, gave us enough time to really like look into it and figure that out. Uh, on the other hand, I think sometimes people get a little too eager to try to file for patents on something that they're not sure that they're actually going to turn it into a company. And it's, you know, it's an expensive and it's a long process. Um, and I think you do want to have some idea that there's going to be a market for this type of, of product uh, before putting in that money and, and time uh, into it. And unfortunately, we'll see that sometimes where uh, you know, people think that they're going to start a company on this particular product. They want to get a patent on it and there just isn't the kind of market that they think there's going to be for it. So I think while you don't want to wait too late, you do want to make sure this it's something that you really are going all in on before you're uh, filing for IP protection. And I feel like a large majority of those individuals go to the IP clinics in, in law schools. And I've there were so many individuals who were planning to start a business. And having the IP isn't necessary for the business to begin. It's much better, in my opinion, to test the idea first and have some backing that have some validation by the market that what you're doing is novel, is wanted, rather than going through the road, getting an attorney involved and spending thousands of dollars to, to go through the patent process. But at the same time, I have seen quite a bit of value accrue when they speak with an attorney and have a better sense of where that product can be adjusted to be more novel or to hit certain parameters. So it's uh, it's an interesting area to practice. And I'm sure you, you've learned so much since you've begun, Cameron. Thanks, thanks for speaking to me and educating me and everyone all about ordinals. It'll be interesting to see what happens with those over the next couple months. And yeah, I just wanted to thank you for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. This was great. And I love to talk about this and appreciate you taking the time to talk to me.